<clears throat> so this morning I'd like to offer some reflections on the theme of the day, that of uh, deconstructing Buddhism. I think perhaps the first point to make is that although we can possibly deconstruct Buddhism, we cannot deconstruct the Dharma. The two are rather different, although often they are used somewhat interchangeably. I think we need to, or at least I need, to differentiate Buddhism as, a, as an institutional form, on the one hand, an institutional form of the Dhamma, which entails both structures, churches, temples, orders, traditions, lineages, and also Buddhism as a as a set of orthodoxies. Each Buddhist school that we encounter through its history, the schools of Buddhism that we come across today in the West, are as a rule um, carrying a particular orthodox interpretation of what the Dhamma means. And that is often very finely worked out. And it may have been in place for many centuries. But at the same time, it is a, a specific uh, historical form that has arisen according to the needs of the peoples for whom that interpretation was originally delivered. So the forms of Buddhism that we will come across are, to the, for the most part, um, uh, uh, sets of doctrines and practices that arose maybe a thousand years ago. Even Theravada Buddhism, which is considered the oldest of the Buddhist schools and within its own self-propaganda, presents itself as going back to the teachings of the Buddha, is in fact um, relatively recent. Uh, Theravada Buddhism is a form, uh, uh, it's an orthodoxy, it's an institutions that began around the 5th century um, AD, or as to be politically correct, CE. And it was founded by the Sri Lankan or Indian monk who worked in Sri Lanka around uh, that time, called Buddha Gosha. And it, in fact, is not any older than most forms of Mahayana Buddhism, historically. I guess the difference is that it refers for its authority to the canonical materials found in the Pali Canon, which, I believe, are the closest we're going to get to what the historical Buddha Siddhartha Gautama might have taught. But nonetheless, Theravada Buddhism is an orthodoxy, a relatively late 
um, organization of ideas in a more or less internally consistent way um, that has then been the framework for the institutions of that particular approach. Now, of course, the question is going to immediately come up. Well, that may be Buddhism, these different schools, these different institutions, but what do you mean by the Dhamma? Let me just quote what the Buddha himself said about the Dhamma. He said, one who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma. And one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising. That's from Majjhima 28. In the Sangyutta Nikaya, you find a very similar statement with a twist. The Buddha says, one who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma. Now by me, obviously, I don't think the Buddha refers to that particular historical personality called Siddhartha Gautama, but rather what that historical person had realized, his state of mind, if you wish, Buddhahood. But nonetheless, it's striking that he uses the first person singular, me. So there's an equivalence, we find, in these early texts between the Dhamma, conditioned arising, and the Buddha himself. The three are somehow equivalent. Now that is not something I think we can deconstruct. The Dhamma here refers to what the Buddha um, spoke of as the object of his waking up. In the, I think it's the 26th middle-length discourse, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the text which is called the Noble Quest, the Buddha describes his own process. And when he comes to describe his awakening, what happened to him under the tree, he says, um, this Dharma I have reached is deep, profound, etc., etc. In other words, when the Buddha describes his journey, he describes various steps that he took, the renunciation of his homeland, the practice of, um, on the one hand, deep states of jhana. He masters the seventh and the eighth jhanas and then declares that they do not lead to where he is, uh, to, uh, or they do not resolve the questions that he had set out to resolve. He describes... Um, not in this text, but in another, the fact that he then did all these ascetic practices. In the end, he found that none of these worked. Now, I think we can take that a little bit further. I think these accounts describe how the Buddha had more or less tried out the different spiritual and religious practices that were available at his time. And this is 5th century BC, India and found that all of them were somehow wanting. They didn't respond to his, his primary existential questions, prompted by his awareness of his mortality, of his having been born, his having to die, 
and the question prompted by that existential awareness, which is, I suspect, for many of us, what prompts our interest in something like Buddhism. And when he describes the end of this quest, the resolution of this quest, he describes how he has arrived at this Dhamma. And then he explains what this Dhamma is. He says that this Dhamma is Ida Pachayata Paticha Samupada. This conditionality, conditioned arising. And he describes that as a, a tanna, which means like a ground or a foundation, in distinction from his preoccupation with his identity as a particular person in a particular place at a particular time, an ego, a social identity, a political identity perhaps, that his awakening was not, in his own description, an awakening to some higher truth. In fact, it's quite striking that in this initial description of his awakening, he doesn't use the word truth, nor does he use a word that has its root in the verb to know. And again, we tend to think of the Buddha, let's say, in the classical image of this person sitting beneath a tree with a rather serene smile on his face, that this is someone who's had what we might consider to be a mystical revelation of some kind in which he has come to know something that previously he didn't know, that he has tapped into some absolute or ultimate reality. But in fact, he doesn't say that. He describes his awakening as a shift of perspective, an existential shift from a preoccupation with his place or his position, his identity, to uh, an encounter, he says, seeing this ground. And he describes this ground as Ida Pachayata, very difficult to translate. This, literally, Ida Pachayata, conditionality. What that refers to, I think, is the conditionality of the phenomenal world. That this, this Dhamma um, is a, a way of uh, experiencing and being with the flux of events themselves. This, of course, is in striking contrast to the tradition that he was primarily critiquing, namely that of the Upanishads, in other words, the traditional views of the Brahmins of his period, the priestly caste, who also use this word ground, but for them the ground refers to Brahman, it refers to the divine ultimate reality of what we might loosely translate as God. The Buddha, and this is characteristic of so much of his teaching, is that he takes terms that have a particular meaning in his culture and he gives them a radically new twist. So the ground the Buddha speaks of 
is not some ultimate ground, some ground of being, but rather the ground is the phenomenal, fluctuating, painful, and contingent experience that is happening to us right now. The problem is, though, that although we might intellectually notice that that is the, the structure of our life, the structure of our world, we don't experience it in that radical way that the Buddha did under that tree. So the this conditionality means the, the conditioned world that is entirely made up of specific things. The, the, the passage in question is striking because, I feel, the Buddha puts emphasis on this word ida, this. He says, idam tannang, this ground, ida pachayata, this hyphen conditionality. In other words, the phenomenal, fluctuating, contingent world of our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, our perceptions, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, all composed of specific transient events, each of which is the product of previous conditions and each of which is the cause or the condition that gives rise to other specific events. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates Ida Pachayata as specific conditionality, which is very good. But the word is not actually specific, it's simply this. Now remember that such an approach too is an um, deliberate, I feel, um, reflection upon a very famous passage in the Brujyaranaka Upanishad, which was uh, one of the key Upanishads already um, uh, extant at the Buddha's time, when you have this idea that to reach God, you need to pursue this process which is described as neti, neti, neti. Not this, not this, not this. <coughs> that in the Upanishadic tradition one, one systematically disassociates oneself or who one truly is from its, one's identification with the specific things of the world. Not only the external world, but also this body, these feelings, this mind, these thoughts... I am not this, I am not this, I am not this. And through such a process of, of deconstruction, in a way, or disassociation, one arrives at what one's true nature is, namely that of Atman, Brahman, which is pure consciousness, which is sometimes described as Sat Chit Anand, truth, consciousness, bliss. And that is described as the adhisthana, the foundation, the ground of all being, of all life, this transcendent underlying reality of God, which is reached by cutting off, as it were, from the sensory world, 
in order to uncover this primary divine conscious ground. Now the Buddha's doing basically the exact opposite. He's saying what he has woken up to is the, is the specific conditionality of the processes of life itself. The ida pachayata, and then he follows that with the expression paticha samupada, conditioned arising, conditionality. Sometimes it's translated as dependent origination. At the Buddha's time, this would have been a very, very radical move. Because unlike not only the Brahmins, but also the Jains, who were the other major tradition, or one of the other major traditions of that time, there is no room in this vision for any kind of transcendent self, transcendent consciousness, transcendent God. But it's an awakening to, I think, what in modern idiom we would call the flux of life itself, our actual phenomenal existence. And that is the Dhamma of which the Buddha speaks. And this, of course, meshes quite seamlessly with how the Buddha presents the practice of meditation in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the, the, the grounding of mindfulness. Again, here's another parallel that is quite striking. Sometimes Satipatthana is translated as the foundations of mindfulness. That's the usual translation. But in fact, Patana is actually a verbal form. This is also true in its Tibetan translation, Dremba Nyevara Shakpa, which means to cl- the close placing of attention or mindfulness. And the word the Buddha uses for this ground, tanna, is the same word as in satipatthana. There's a direct link, et, uh, linguistically. And I don't, think this, I don't think this is accidental. I think the Buddha was a, a, a very acute language user. He selected his terms, I think, very consciously, very precisely, poss- possibly... This developed over the course of his teaching career. I don't know. No one knows. But in any case, the practice of mindfulness is really the practice of grounding our experience in the specifics of our here and now experience. And so when he describes the practice of satipatthana, the practice of meditation, he starts with a monk... He describes a monk who goes into a forest and sits at the root of a tree or in an empty hut and sets his body upright. And then when he breathes out a long breath, he knows that he breathes out a long breath. And when he breathes out a short breath, he knows that he breathes out a short breath. When he walks forward, he knows that he walks forward. When he looks backwards, he knows that he looks backwards. When he's carrying his bowl, he knows that he's carrying his bowl. Full awareness of carrying his bowl, wearing his robes. When he urinates, when he defecates. And that, I think, at the time must have been terribly shocking. 
that this is a spiritual practice that actually requires that one is fully aware of pissing and shitting. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. It's very, it's very important, I think, um, to try to see how the Buddha's teaching um, is not given in some sort of vacuum, in some kind of timeless space, but is given within a very specific historical context which can, to some considerable extent, be reconstructed. For those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, I'd suggest a book that was published last year by Richard Gombrich, who was the former professor of Sanskrit at Cambridge in England, now retired, and he published a book last year called What the Buddha Thought. It, this is a, a homage to Gombrich's teacher, Walpola Rahula, who wrote a very famous book called What the Buddha Taught. Gombrich has now published this slim volume, quite readable, called What the Buddha Thought. And the thrust of Gombrich's uh, presentation is to try to understand the Buddha's teaching as we find in the Pali materials. in terms of there being a, a, an explicit or an implicit critique or response to the doctrines that were current at the Buddha's time in history. So this enables us, I feel, to get um, uh, to contextualize what the Buddha's doing. Of course, all of this is very much in line with my idea of deconstructing Buddhism, in other words, the different orthodoxies and schools and, and so forth that, that have arisen in the past two and a half thousand years, to try to get back to the environment within which Siddhartha Gautama lived and taught. And again, I think what comes across as, uh, uh, as, as authoritative in the Pali tradition is that we can actually detect quite reliably passages where the Buddha is clearly making references to Upanishadic texts or Vedanta. And he's, as it were, um, speaking to those traditions in a way that uh, defines his own uh, view, which, as he himself describes in the passage I cited, at the end of the passage I've just cited earlier, he says... What I'm teaching is pati sotagami. It goes against the stream. It goes against what people are used to. It goes against the currents of thought that prevail in this world. It goes against, at a deeper level, so much of our instinctive, intuitive sense of who we are, of what this world is, of what spiritual, religious, philosophical life is about. And in many ways, the Buddha turns our assumptions about religion on its head. Rather than religion being about our relationship to God, or Brahman, for the Buddha, our religious life begins with our encounter with the phenomenal world from another perspective. And there's no need to posit any kind of ultimate or absolute reality. Although 
every school of Buddhism that we'll come across today, from the Theravada schools to the Mahayana schools, both in China and Tibet, all have as a very foundational uh, orthodox doctrine the notion of the two truths, that the world is somehow constituted of ultimate truths and relative or conventional truths. I'm sure most of you, if you've read books on Buddhism or, or, or heard Buddhist teaching, will be familiar with these ideas. The ultimate truth, which is sometimes understood as emptiness, sometimes as pure radiant mind, and the conventional truth, which is the, the phenomenal world itself, the world of appearance, the world that changes and that is unreliable and fluctuating. And yet, nowhere in the discourses of the Pali Canon or in the Vinaya, which are equivalently ancient, I suspect, do we find these ideas. They're not mentioned once. The Buddha never speaks in these terms. He never speaks of an ultimate truth or an ultimate reality. Buddhism does, but not the Buddha. And so the Dhamma to go back to my original point, uh, is very much about uh, the phenomenal world. The Buddha does not privilege any element of that phenomenal world uh, as being somehow more real or true than any other element. He does not privilege mind over matter. He does not privilege matter over mind. He, his sense of the world, his sense of life is that of an, what I would call an open field of contingent events. Uh, rising, passing, rising, passing, with no need to posit some sort of ground out of which they emerge. There is simply this open field of events. And that is the context within which he teaches the Dhamma. The Dhamma is, in fact, that open field of contingent events. And when he practices, when he instructs one in meditation, the practice is very much about paying uh, a radically uh, uh, astute and sharp attention to that open field of events. And so this wonderful passage at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta where he describes the monk literally focusing his attention, and for nuns, of course, or laymen, laywomen, their attention, on the phenomenal world itself. But he qualifies this. The ground of which he speaks is not just the paticca samuppada, the contingently arising events, but also it refers to what he calls the, um, the stopping of craving, the stopping of grasping. So this experience of the conditioned world is not one which is simply a kind of intellectual reflection about it or just a, a superficial acknowledgement or noticing that things change. But it's a, an awareness of this ground from another state of mind a state of mind which he sometimes calls unconditioned. 
And what he means by unconditioned, and again, here we have an example of how he takes a term from his culture in the Brahmanic tradition, the, un the unconditioned would have referred to God uh, or something outside the conditioned world. For the Buddha, unconditioned, and again, we have to remember in, in Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Chinese, there's no definite article. There's no the. And there's definitely no capital U. <laughs> the unconditioned, which so often becomes basically um, an impersonal variant on the God idea. The Buddha understands unconditioned as unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by egoism, confusion, jealousy, etc., etc., etc. He turns what was a noun into a verb. And Sanskrit Pali, a very, can, one can do that very easily. So once again, we have the idea of the Buddha's experience being one of the phenomenal world, the world we're experiencing right now, the world that we encounter when we sit in meditation and just notice what's happening. But we notice that, or the Buddha notices that, from a state of awareness, a quality of awareness in which it's one is no longer conditioned by his wants, his fears, his aversions, his attachments, his agendas. It's an awareness that is unconditioned by those things. And it's this uh, sense that, um, it's, it's this double sense in a way of his notion of ground. A ground deep within ourselves, a quality of still, clear awareness that we seek to cultivate when we practice uh, sitting meditation, walking meditation, and at the same time referring to the open field of contingent events that in a sense opens up or becomes um, lucid and present and immediate when we can begin to open our eyes, our ears, our noses, our tongues, our bodies, our thoughts, our minds, to the experience of things rising and passing that is happening within us and around us all the time. So the Dhamma, and the, so the, so the Dhamma refers both to this experience of un of awareness unconditioned by greed and attachment and selfishness, as well as the experience of life itself when witnessed from such a point of view. And that, I feel, is very much the foundation of, what, of everything the Buddha teaches, both in terms of his uh, uh, doctrines and, and theories, as well as in terms of the kinds of meditation practice that he, he brings into India in that period. The, to carry on a bit further with the idea of, of, of deconstruction, one of the perspectives that our modern or Western consciousness brings to uh, the uh, encounter with Buddhism is that of historical awareness. 
Uh, again, we take this so much for granted that we find it difficult to imagine uh, a way of, of being in this world in which some sense of, of, of historicity is not uh, present. In other words, let's just give an example for that. If we, are to, if we were asked, you know, why is Japanese Pure Land Buddhism so different from, let's say, Nyingma Tibetan practices? Why are Japanese temples so different from Tibetan temples? I suspect most of us would say, as though it were rather self-evident, well, because one is the product of Japanese culture and the other is the product of Tibetan culture or Indian culture or whatever. That is a very Western way of looking at things. Traditional Buddhists probably would not answer that question in that same way. It's likely, and I've actually had discussions with traditional Buddhists, both Tibetans and with Koreans, for whom the obvious answer is, well, because the, let's say, Korean tradition has understood Buddhism correctly, and the Tibetan tradition or the Japanese hasn't. <laughs> one is right and one is wrong. Now, what we bring, what modernity brings to the understanding of Buddhism is that Buddhism itself is a historically contingent, conditioned arising. It too has emerged out of causes and circumstances and conditions. In other words, the specifics of its own history, the specifics of the cultures in which it has arisen, the specifics of the historical period at which it arose, and that is what has generated that particular brand or branch or school of Buddhism. So Buddhism is certainly historically conditioned. And in this sense, we can see that our um, sense of Buddhism, of what Buddhism is, is far more uh, tentative, perhaps, than may have been in the past. And I think it's particularly striking, um, let's say, being here in New York or in North America or Europe today, that suddenly, within a period of 20 or 30 years, we have available to us, uh, in any city in the modern West, pretty much every variant form of Buddhism that, has, uh, that, that exists. Within New York itself, we can find different forms of Tibetan Buddhism, we can find different forms of Theravada Buddhism, different forms of Zen Buddhism, all within a few subway stops. That's a very unusual uh, situation, very unusual. And we have magazines like Tricycle or Buddha Dhamma that um, routinely present us with this array of different traditions and schools and practices. And we have to re remember that although this is, 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 is normative for us now, we're quite used to flicking through these magazines and seeing what the Zen people are doing, what the Tibetans are doing, what the Vipassana people are doing, and occasionally we'll get something exotic like Shingon or some newfangled version of Buddhism. Um, uh, but this, from in the last two and a half thousand years, has never really happened before. If you grew up in Japan or if you grew up in 
eastern Tibet or if you grew up in southern Burma, you would have been exposed through the whole of your life to one particular school. And that's all you would have ever known about Buddhism. That school will have probably remembered um, uh, in its own teachings uh, the views of other usually ancient Indian schools and will obviously have refuted them very convincingly to show that it and it alone has got the Dharma right. But your actual encounter with Buddhism would be limited just to that one school. You wouldn't have had this highly plural encounter with Buddhist culture that we take so much now for granted. And thereby also you would have had, I think, less um, uh, of a context, less of an ability to recognize the, uh, the conditioned historical nature of Buddhism itself. So when we talk of deconstructing Buddhism and reconstructing Buddhism, we are, as it were, um, uh, 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 looking at the differences within the different schools, within the different traditions, recognizing their historicity, and thereby somehow relativizing the whole lot. And it is, again, probably for most of us, apparently self-evident that if the Dhamma is to take root in, in modernity, and again, I'm reluctant to use the word the West, because this is no longer just a Western phenomenon. You'll find that in Japan in particular, but in places like Taiwan, in China, uh, in, um, uh, in Thailand and elsewhere, similar kinds of perspectives are now emerging. When I lived as a monk in Korea in the 1980s, early 1980s, Koreans were only aware of Korean Buddhism. That was about it. There was no, there was no literature, no uh, consciousness of other forms of Buddhism, which were just broadly considered to be you know, necessarily inferior to what went on in Korea. But nowadays, if you go to Seoul, you'll find that um, Tibetan Buddhist teachings, Vipassana traditions, Thich Nhat Hanh, all of these are now available in books, in practice centers. And this is causing considerable anxiety within the orthodox Korean uh, uh, tradition of the Chogye order. Uh, they don't quite know how to deal with this. And yet many Koreans... Um, who are in a way educated in the sort of way we are in universities, they're part of the global economy, they're part of a sort of global awareness. They're very fascinated, they're very drawn to some of these other forms of Buddhism. So what's going on in the West is also now going on globally. And I think we are, as it were, moving into a very new environment, a very new kind of cultural situation, where the certainties of so many Buddhist orthodoxies are becoming less and less secure. This is both, I think, exciting, but also rather troubling, because it seems that in some senses, 
Buddhism in its traditional forms is under threat. I do feel that this historical awareness is very much um, an instance of the Buddha's own Dhamma of Ida Pachayata Paticca Samupada. History, the study of history, to me is a very beautiful and very vivid illustration of the principle of conditioned arising. When we study history, we study the conditions under which events take place, under which peoples and individuals emerge in their cultures to prominence, as to how the changes that undergo, that cultures undergo over the centuries take place. And all of this is really just an, uh, an illustration of Paticca Samupada. The same is true likewise with the way in which we understand the emergence of life on earth the uh, theory of evolution by natural selection is to me a most wonderful example of how conditionality works. In traditional Buddhist Buddhist cultures, conditionality is usually illustrated by um, how we tend to behave in certain ways that give rise to suffering or to well-being. And that, of course, is a rather central and uh, important aspect of Buddhist uh, philosophy and practice. But we can now see through um, these disciplines of our modern world, of history and of of modern science, um, the same principles playing themselves out on a much larger scale. So when the Buddha now says, the one who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma, and the one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising, and the one who sees the Dhamma sees me, and the one who sees me sees the Dhamma, conditioned arising, which is the key idea, is now apparent to us not just through Buddhist texts, but through so many features of our contemporary understanding of life itself, in the biosphere, as well as our own human history, our own human culture that we see as having emerged out of conditions and we recognize this condition we're in now as what will give birth to what comes later. I was in Berlin uh, shortly after the um, fall of the Berlin Wall and I remember seeing a piece of graffito on a fragment of the wall that still remained that said, Ein Mensch ohne Geschichte ist wie ein Baum ohne Wurzeln, which means a person without history is like a tree without roots. And I feel the same with regard to my own practice of the Dhamma or my own practice of Buddhism is that um, to not have, to lack this sense of historical awareness is somehow to uh, lack a sense of rootedness in the tradition itself. 
Buddhism is always reminding us, likewise, to not take things at face value. Uh, to have uh, a critical awareness in which um, whatever occurs, we try to look more deeply into what is going on. And the, the strategy that is most, uh, most commonly applied, particularly uh, in the, the early tradition, is by uh, noticing, and this is really what vipassana is all about, it's once one has calmed and stilled one's attention to notice in one's breath, in one's body, in one's feelings, in whatever is occurring, that what is happening is anicca, it's impermanent, it's changing, it's flux, it's tra transient, it is dukkha, in other words, it's unsatisfactory, it's imperfect, it's unreliable, it's undependable, it is in some senses tragic or potentially tragic. And it is anatta, it is uh, not me, not mine. It is simply a process of impersonal events, whether those events be the sound of that air conditioner or the truck outside or the thoughts and feelings and anxieties that are animating my mind right now. These are not essentially me or mine. They're simply events that rise, pass away, give rise to other events. Now, although this is a very uh, common uh, form of practice and a very essential part of any kind of Buddhist contemplation of the world, it's not a perspective that is very often, if ever, applied to Buddhism itself. But Buddhism too is an event of the same nature. It too is impermanent, it is unsatisfactory, and it is not me or mine. Now this, of course, again can be unsettling. One often, I've often had the impression that when Buddhist writers or teachers say everything is impermanent, they mean everything except Buddhism and my version of it is impermanent. <laughs> everything is unsatisfactory except the particular orthodox views I hold about Buddhism. And everything is, is not me except my religion or whatever. So all of this, likewise, I think, um, uh, begins to, uh, to, to, to lead us to think about uh, the Dhamma, to think about Buddhist tradition from another light. And yet what is curious is this other light is found right there within the Buddhist tradition itself. Uh, and this, to me, is one of the most striking aspects of the collision between Buddhist traditions and um, contemporary culture. There seems to be a very uh, powerful um, meeting, a very powerful um, coming together of parallel streams of thought and ideas from quite different sources, but that seem to be 
impacting with each other in what might be an enormously creative moment within the history of the Dharma itself. Now this, of course, has already happened. Um, one can find examples within the history of Buddhism where orthodoxies have been challenged. I think what occurs sometimes when Buddhism goes from one culture to another, or sometimes within, a similar, within the same culture, if a certain degree of rigidity sets in, a certain degree of um, autocratic power within an institution begins to become too, too sure of itself or too inflexible, then that often will trigger a revolt. I think the best, I can think of three examples in all the Buddhist traditions. One is the, tr the tradition of the forest monks in Burma and Thailand, uh, who differentiate themselves from the city monks. And this is a tradition that goes quite far back in Buddhist history. But one of the movements that again has been very influential in, this, uh, in modern Theravada, or let's say in the Vipassana movement, um, are the teachings and the insights that have come to us from the forest traditions. Now the forest traditions um, are in some senses a relatively recent event in Burma and Thailand particularly. Groups of monks who rejected the, um, uh, the, the way of monasticism which was tied to the cities and the kings and the courts that was rather dogmatic and rather concerned with scholarly interpretation. And this was rejected in favor of a return to the rural environments of simplicity, of going back to the primary teachings and giving increasing emphasis on the authenticity of your own experience. And I think there are wonderful examples of this tradition who teach here. I think Ajahn Amuro is coming here shortly and others all of whom are in fact part of a reform movement within Southeast Asia. Something relatively recent, going back maybe a hundred years or so in its current form. In East Asian Buddhism, I think the best example of this kind of uh, rebellion within the tradition is the emergence of Chan in China, or Zen as it's known, which was again a break with the rather intellectual and scholarly orthodoxies of 5th, 6th century China, and then a point at which people began to say, but let's get back to what the Buddha was doing. And so in Zen, or Chan, this emphasis on just sitting, on going back to that example of sitting quietly beneath a tree, and in the, what, what are called in Japan, the Rohatsu Seshin, uh, the seven-day retreat that is uh, um, practiced in Japan. It's the first week of December of every year, but it's the first week of the 12th lunar month, traditionally. The, the monks return to that, or they try to exemplify or mirror what the Buddha himself did a giving up of all the religious institutions and doctrines and a return 
to the, primus, the primary act of sitting. And in, in, in Soto Zen, this is simply you know, just sitting, without expectation, without any agenda, just sitting. That's a very radical move. Of course, subsequently, Zen too has become an orthodoxy. Zen too has got its own power structures. It's become, in a sense, what, in some ways, its founders rebelled against. Another example, historically, is the emergence of the Vajrayana tradition. And I think in particular through the examples of the Mahasiddhas. And these were often monks. A good example is the figure of Naropa, an abbot at Nalanda, this great monastery, who abandons his monastic vocation. He disrobes, he follows a very weird teacher called Tilopa, and in a sense goes against everything that Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist establishment regarded as indispensable and true and took off in a totally different direction. But in doing so, and the reason for his doing so, was to come back to a kind of authenticity and integrity that was not attached to conformity or orthodoxy. But again, the Vajrayana tradition likewise has become another institution, another power structure in so many ways. So what is happening or might be happening uh, in modernity is, I think, just another moment of uh, reflection, of reconsideration of what the Dharma means in this time and in this place. To conclude, I'd like to give another way in which I myself have found very helpful in this uh, process of trying to get back to uh, the Dhamma as opposed to holding on to the certainties and the convictions of Buddhism. And that in recent years uh, has come from uh, trips I've been making to India, um, very often as part of a tricycle group, pilgrimage. But um, I've spent a lot of time in the last three or four years going back to the earliest examples of Buddhist uh, temple architecture that still survive in India and that date back to, um, in some cases, as far as the second century BC, or BCE to be politically correct, before the Common Era. Now, of course, Buddhism has ceased to function um, as a, an, a religious movement, or let's say traditional Buddhism in India, um, ceased to really be active after about the 12th century of our era. And as a result, there are virtually no freestanding Buddhist temples that date back to the period where Buddhism flourished before the 12th century. The only one that I'm aware of really is the temple in Bodhgaya, which is a Gupta period, in other words, 5th century AD temple. Very beautiful temple. I'm sure many of you have seen it. The only uh, temples that do survive, therefore, are the ones that are not freestanding. In other words, the ones that were carved out of rock. 
Now, there are, in fact, several hundred of these structures, uh, mainly in Maharashtra, in Bombay, Aurangabad, Pune area, and also some further east in Andhra Pradesh. But perhaps the most, um, the, the, the most famous of these are, of course, the Ajanta Caves. They're called caves. They're not caves. They're not caves at all. Um, what they are are um, sculpted voids. Now, just to give an example of how, of how these were made, imagine that you have a little church, or even a big church, and next to that church, or some distance away, is a great big uh, mountain, a great big rock, cliff, let's say. And someone gets the idea, why don't we carve out from the rock the interior of the church? You see what I mean? So you, you go into, you start with just, uh, just, just, just a, cliff, a cliff face, and then, remember, there's no power drills at this time, just chisels, steel chisels and hammers, and you begin to chip out of the rock a space that is identical to the space within a freestanding temple. That's what these so-called cave temples are. And... It's, and they're, not, they're, they're largely made of, and these are particularly true of Ajanta and elsewhere in that area, they're not chipped out of wimpy sandstone, like Petra, which is, a, which is relatively easy. They're chipped out of black basalt, <laughs> seriously hard stone. And they are, in the case of, of the one I'm going to talk about now, the, the temple at Karla, which is two hours south of Bombay. Karla, K-A-R-L-A, or sometimes spelt K-A-R-L-I, Karli, Karla, very unknown in the Buddhist world. This is the oldest one, and it's also the largest. It goes into the rock um, about 100 feet, and it's about 30 feet high. Uh, you can Google it, and you'll get some pictures of what it looks like. It's the most extraordinary thing. Um, it's, it's, it's an absidal chaitya, is the technical word. It is a long apse, a, a long ch uh, chamber, about uh, nearly about half the width, maybe as wide as this room, that goes 100 feet into the rock, and it's about 30 feet high with a vaulted ceiling, and at the far end, an apse. In other words, a, a curved end. And down both sides run columns, pillars, that follow the line of the wall. And in the, the very end of the apse, there is a chaitya, or what we call nowadays a stupa. And this stupa, the very earliest stupas, have, uh, are simply a, um, a cylinder on which is mounted a sphere on top of which is a cube. In other words, primary geometrical forms, Euclidean shapes. There are no Buddha images whatsoever. There are no um, 
decorative things uh, that somehow are bas-reliefs of Jataka stories or whatever, which you find in the later rock-cut temples. But here you just have pure form. Now, these temples are the, um, the, the, the reflection or the, um, the manifestation or the articulation of the kinds of ideas and teachings and practices of the people of that period. Um, they're the only examples that survive of um, that period in early Buddhism, the sort of teachings that we find now in the Pali Canon. They are pre-Theravada, they're pre-Mahayana, they are um, uh, the Buddhist community's first attempt to um, represent its values in three-dimensional form, in sculpture and architecture. Um, I found them. I find them uh, profoundly moving. Um, of course, they're not used anymore as places of practice or worship, but by sitting in them, um, one can, or I can feel, uh, something resonant with these very early teachings that I am equally uh, seeking out in the Pali canon. And in fact, the, these temples are, as it were, um, uh, concrete uh, images of those very ideas. At least that's what I like to think they are. We know nothing of the people who created them, nothing at all. Many of these places are not mentioned in any of the Buddhist literature, and they only survive for the very simple reason that you can't destroy a void. You can't fill it up with stone again, take it back to what it was. They're indestructible. And particularly these early ones, in which there, is no, there are no decorative motifs or Buddha images, there's nothing you can chip off. There's nothing you can deface. It is just pure form. And that, to me, is gives a similar, albeit, you know, architectural experience that I likewise find in some of these passages that I seek or discover in the Pali Canon itself. The Pali Canon, of course, has got a lo loads of material in it. But I feel that there are passages that have a kind of antiquity, an originality, a purity, and a simplicity that mirror the purity and the simplicity of these uh, temple forms. So, this deconstructing of Buddhism, I don't see just as a process of um, dismantling some of the later superstructures of ideas, but also I can see the same process in terms of the evolution of Buddhist temple architecture. It's particularly striking if you go, say, to Ajanta, where you can have examples of, there are 26 rock-cut uh, uh, temples in Ajanta, uh, two of which go back to this period about 2nd century BC. Many of the others 
are later, um, the last ones being made in about the 8th century AD. And when, she, when you see these, they are they're extremely beautiful, but they're extraordinarily elaborate. Uh, they're um, all to do with uh, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and uh, this gorgeous but almost Baroque or Rococo um, fascination with uh, detail and decoration. They've completely gone beyond the uh, purity and simplicity of the earliest ones, a bit like the Christian churches in Europe. If you go to a 5th century church and then you compare it to something in Rome built in the 16th century, it's the same kind of difference. So much of my work at the moment um, is very much about this process of, 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 of recovering uh, some of these early ideas on the one hand and revisiting some of these early um, architectural structures on the other. Um, I've spoken way longer than I intended to. Let's, um, it's now nearly 12 o'clock. I suggest that we again stand up. We'll have a five-minute break if you need to use the restrooms, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll open this up for discussion and possibly have a short meditation before we close for lunch.